You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. And this week, I am going to do the factoid, because Eric, I learned a factoid that I thought was pretty interesting. So, okay, the average person uh, walks approximately, and you know, it varies obviously with age, but right. they, they estimate somewhere around four to five miles a day. Now, obviously, waitresses, servers, uh, certain kinds of occupations, you're going to walk a lot more than that in a daily, on a, a day to day. But right. they estimate, let, let's say, about, you know, five miles per day. And what this comes out to be is that if you think about your prime walking years, and again, I'm being pretty liberal here, let's say from 10 to about 70, so it's a good 60-plus years of walking, say, five miles a day on average. Uh, this comes out to be approximately 125,000 miles Ooh. in your lifetime. Here's what's crazy about that. The Earth's circumference is... 25,000 miles. So you actually are walking in your lifetime five times around the globe. Wow. Or if you prefer from, say, New York to L.A. about two dozen times in your life. That is insane. I mean, it's insane to me. Now, now, you know, most days I just end up back at home. It feels like, um, you know, (laughs) I could really be going places if I, you know. If you started was, now, you you could you could traverse the globe in about ten years. Yeah, it, it's I love those kind of things that put it in perspective of like you know around the entire Earth or you know to the moon and back or you know stuff like that. Yeah, uh, mind blowing. Yeah. All absolutely. right. Well, all right, so, uh, how you doing? Uh, doing all right. I'm actually in Sacramento right now. Um, oh, getting ready fantastic. to uh, teach a, the exclusionology class uh, this week uh, for California DOJ. Yet again, um, <laughs> keep ending up back here in in, in Sacramento um, between the conference and teaching this class for, I think the other part of California DOJ. I, I, I don't understand all the different divisions that and agencies and sections out here in California, but um, it's warm. I, I <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. I was warm. planning on heading north to get away from the heat. And uh, didn't quite work out that way. But uh, what about you? Anything, uh, anything special on this you know first Sunday of the NFL season? Well, funny you should mention that. In fact, uh, yeah, you know, I I do a big. Uh, there is a big Steelers bar here in Minneapolis or oh, right. in St. Paul actually. So it, I, you know, I go every year. They do the big first first back together. Uh, they they try to raise a bunch of funds, so they do raffles and such, and they use that money to buy prizes that they give away at halftime throughout the year. So it's it's a cool little thing. Cool. Uh, today I bought some raffle tickets, and I I never do because I never win. I mean, I never win raffles. In fact, right. I you know I've been in those pink elephant raffles, and if they are pulling all the tickets, I'm not kidding. 
<laughs> more times than not, I am the last ticket drawn or the second to last ticket right. drawn. And then I can predict it with, <laughs> with scary accuracy, so I don't bother with those. But I bought some for my son today, who is a bit lucky. He won the grand prize. He, wow. he, they pulled one ticket for the grand prize, and he won it right away. It was unbelievable. And what it's, was it? Uh, well, it's it's kind of cool for Steelers fans. It is um, it's a seat like an original seat from Three River Stadium in oh, Pittsburgh, cool. and they had taken the seat out and it had been signed by two uh, Hall of Famers, Jack Lambert and Jack Ham, and another one Andy Russell. They made up part of what was called the Steel Curtain in the you know, in the seventies and eighties. Yep. So, I mean, these are, you know, two very famous icons from Pittsburgh. And so they've autographed the seat and then pictures. Uh, they had autographed pictures of them, too. So he won all that. Uh, I am I was ecstatic. <laughs> he, he thought it was pretty cool <laughs> that he won. I don't know that he appreciated what he actually won. Right, right. So uh, I'm going to be holding on to that for him for a while. That'll go in right, the right. cave. Until he can really appreciate it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> No, it's right. uh, it's it's pretty sweet though. So anyway, you, yeah, good day. Are you gonna good set day. it up as like a, a seat to watch Steelers games in your in your man cave in your basement? Oh no 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 one's ass is touching that. It's <laughs> it's it's actually worth something. So anyway, real quick uh, stop over in in email land. Uh, I got an email a couple days ago from a, a listener who. Um, who was a listener a while ago, uh, but kind of stopped because uh, she was getting too distracted during comparisons to, to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started to catch back up on things and uh, just listened to our Inconclusive with Similarities episode way back in episode 75. You know, kind of good timing was, uh, was had just come on, on a case where that kind of conclusion would have been something she was interested in. Uh, so kind of started a conversation at her agency and with uh, her tech lead and now they're kind of looking for for more information on on you know other examples or how we've handled it in other cases as well so Hmm. good to hear that even our old episodes are are still useful and sparking debate and yeah and getting people thinking about about um, you know how to how to make little tweaks to to uh, improve things at their labs uh, even now. So I'll send off the information and uh, uh, you know maybe we can hear back to see um, whether they decided to go with the change or not and some of the reasons for that. Yeah, and and the, you know of course a good resource is the Squeak Fast document number ten. Although the draft version included right. new you know those new definitions of inconclusive too. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and hopefully here soon, um, OSAC will will have something out uh, along those same lines um, that uh, maybe even can expand, um, you know, from where uh, Swiftfast left off a few years ago. So uh, you got back from a conference last week, is that correct? Right. We were hosting a conference here uh, at in in Minnesota. The conference was actually being conducted by South Dakota State University, and uh, it was the International Conference for Inference and Forensic Statistics, or something like that, or International, and that's what it is, International Conference for Forensic Inference and Statistics, ICFIS, ICFIS, ICFIS. Okay. Uh, Yep, I-C-F-I-S. 
and they they host this uh, every every three years. It's been going on for thirty years. Oh and this wow! Is the, this is the tenth uh, tenth one. Yeah, it was started by guys like uh, Colin Aitken and uh, Ian Evitt and those guys, and you know early early members David Kay and uh, you know Jay Kohler's involved and. Um, obviously, Cedric and Christoph Shampo, Franco Taroni, these you know these guys, these yeah. names we've heard you know and talked about before on the show. So the basically the guys are really interested in uh, statistics and inference and how that how that comes into play. We've just dis- and we'll discuss a few things tonight. But uh, so tenth uh, tenth version of this conference and it usually travels around uh, around the world so it was in the u.s this time and uh we had the honor of having it here in minneapolis and it was great uh on the now, first have you been day one of these before no no i've always been wanting to go but it always falls at a bad time for me right. and so i had, had not been good location for you so obviously there yep. you go well, and 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 that and because of that, the first day we hosted at the uh, the Minnesota you know BCA the the State Crime Lab, and we we had the first day workshops there. So we had everyone come in. We bust them in, and held it there. And then the rest of the conference was at a local university at uh, in downtown Minneapolis. So uh, what I'm going to break it down is for the workshops that we had and the lectures. And I didn't get a chance to attend all of the lectures. or In fact, I only attended one of two and a half days of lectures. So I missed out on a lot, but I'm glad I got to see what I did. Yeah. So the one of the workshops – well, we did two workshops. The first workshop was – Forensics 101 for statisticians. A lot of times, I guess, at this conference in the past, there'll be statisticians doing statistics 101 for forensic scientists. But Cedric wanted to spin it a little bit and thought, you know, these guys don't know anything about forensics. They're interested in research. Why don't we teach them about forensics and maybe start thinking, you know, getting them to think about how they can apply some of their problems and problem-solving skills to familiar problems but in the forensic world so we we taught them about pattern evidence dna and trace and it was actually really good they asked good questions we gave them some exercises and that was a nice uh setting for what came in the afternoon the afternoon workshop uh, was this workshop i had talked about on previous podcasts where we ended up with a panel of lay people who were listening to forensic conclusions and statements and statistical statements, etc. And the panel of lay people consisted of three police officers, three attorneys, and about 10 or so lay people from various professions. We had uh, you know, a factory worker, a retired, um, I think, I don't know, he might have been a doctor or some sort of physician, um, a couple of other retirees, a homemaker, a hairdresser, um, you know, all, all kinds of different people from different backgrounds. And they, uh, they listened to us for about three hours. Cedric, uh, Cedric and I had several scenarios and topics that we walked through. And um, you know, they, they would, it would go like this. Uh, Cedric would start with a scenario. Here's a case, a mock case. So here's the details of the case. And then I would be the forensic scientist. And so I'd say, okay, I analyze the latent print from the crime scene and the known prints, uh, you know, collected from Mr. X. And they were found to be consistent. And then we'd ask them a bunch of questions about what that means. 
And then, and then later we give another scenario, and they were found to be consistent, and so Mr. X cannot be excluded as the source. What does that mean? And then we, you know, it would it would go up, and it cannot be excluded as the source. And in fact, the constellation of minutia that were found in correspondence were run through a likelihood ratio model. And if the person is the um, if the person is the source of the latent print, then it would be ten thousand times more likely to observe those characteristics than if the person is not the source of the latent print. So we just kept ramping it up, and eventually we get to. We identify him as the source. We identify him to the exclusion of all others. And, you know, we, we pick their brains to see what they thought about this and, and, and what kind of information they, they needed. We ask them questions about error rates. You know, what do you think the error rate for fingerprints is? What do you think it is for DNA? Which one is more reliable? Would it surprise you to find that fingerprints has these error rate studies, but DNA did not? <laughs> would, would that change your opinion of the reliability of the evidence? So these are the kinds of questions we ask them. So what were some of the highlights from, uh, from all that? I mean, I'm sure you guys are collecting data this whole time, right? Yes. So every time we would stop uh, a topic, we'd ask them some questions. They'd fill out a survey, and we'd collect the survey. And we also did it for the audience of statisticians, too. And we had uh, Cedric students here collecting the data and in live time while we were stalling them with some other stuff. We'd uh, tally up the results and then finish our little thing and then show the, the results on screen after we'd stalled long enough. And so the audience could see live how they were answering these questions or, you know, the nearly live, right. uh, but we could see the results and then we could ask them about them and, and have a discussion. And there were some pretty cool moments where when it came to statistics, the audience of statisticians, you know, got it all right, or most of them got it right. And then the, you know, the lay people were essentially gave the one answer they weren't supposed to give when it came to, and they, they did an incorrect calculation. They took an error rate, or sorry, they they took a random match probability, for example, right. a likelihood ratio, and they, they transformed it into an error rate. Uh, they didn't consider population size a prior when they were given the likelihood ratio, so their posterior probability was wrong, and a number of not unexpected things. Right. Right. So, I mean, it just it, it showed that you needed to – well, in, until we started giving them more information and um, adding verbal statements to the um, – uh, to the numbers. If we just gave them a number, they didn't do well. But if we gave them a number and showed them uh, a verbal scale with magnitude, they could begin to move in the right direction. They still weren't quite exactly right, but they were at least moving in the right direction. And uh, that, was, that was an interesting takeaway take for me, that you really do want to present it to them in as many different forms as possible, but focusing on relative magnitude not just numbers in fact the the one of the guys the um jurors the doctor guy said i don't know you said one in a million i don't know if, if a million is big or small in this context without right. any relative understanding of what a million is i i have no idea and i thought that was a very astute point and that was we were deliberately doing that once we show them a scale of what a million would be like i think they had a better grounding so what about just the verbal identification or even all the way to exclusion of all others? Um, yeah. 
they definitely didn't buy that. <laughs> that uh, I mean, we'll, we'll get the data, but yeah, they they were not down for that. In fact, I remember I remember one gal in the front row just made such a face when that statement was made. I mean, she literally looked like she had just bit into a lemon when, when that statement was thrown out. It was huh. it, it was great, um, but. She actually said something later that I, that really stood out to me, and what she had said was, you know, if you tell me that you're an expert, I'm going to just go with what you say. I don't know anything about fingerprints. If you tell me it's an identification, it's a match, and it's him, right. good enough for me. That's all I need to hear. That was one person because then the other person behind her turned around and went, well, I'd like a little more than that because how do you know if he's a good expert or not? And um, and then it jumped around, you know, and there was some discussion. So, I mean, it seemed like some jurors were just fine trusting the expert, the trust me, I'm the expert statement. But then there were other jurors that were much more skeptical and needed to see data uh, and uh, needed to – well – I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but one thing that fascinated me, and it kept coming up, yeah. the, uh, they really seemed, the jurors, mind you, seemed to want to know about validations. They wanted to know about validation studies. We had this really cool scenario where we gave them an, um, a statistic for a DNA sample, and then we gave them a statistic for pheromone identification. Pheromone identification doesn't exist. But we explained what it was and how it would work, and they didn't know that it didn't exist. Right. And uh, when you said that, I was like, um, <laughs> right. don't, okay, go ahead. I may, I may need to kind of read up on this a little bit, but, oh, okay, yeah, it doesn't exist. Okay, got Do, it, go. <laughs> right, right. So we, they had the same statistic, but they treated them differently, the weights of the evidence differently, and they shouldn't have because if they were trusting the expert, they should have just gone with that number. But they were doing what Bill, oh. Bill Thompson predicted they might do a little bit is that once they hear a statistic, they then filter it and adjust it themselves, which is not great because why make a measurement if they're – why tell someone it's it's a yard and then they go well you mean you mean a foot then no i i mean a yard well yeah but i'm gonna just take that as a foot yeah but the measurement is a yard yep okay well a foot then nope <laughs> so this is this is what they're doing we were telling them the likelihood ratio is a hundred thousand and then they they adjust it much much lower for pheromone evidence which and so one of the things that they said is if if you had talked at all about how valid it is, what validation studies had been, had been done, we might have had a very different view. And this came up again when it came into when it got to fingerprints. They did want to know about error rate studies. And they they really couldn't parse out the, the difference between error rate studies and validation studies. They just kept saying, "Tell me how reliable it is, or tell me what studies you've done to show me it's reliable." I'd want to hear that. Maybe, and and to different extents. One guy said, "I just want to know that you did these studies, and you tell me it's reliable." And another guy said, "I wouldn't mind seeing the data." The doctor again said, "I'd like to see <laughs> right. the data." Right. So, I mean, that was pretty fascinating, and, and that was a big takeaway take for me was maybe we really should spend some time talking about, you know, validation studies. And, and here's the question I asked, you know, the lawyers, whose job is it to bring it up? Is it the defense attorney's job right. or prosecutor's? And so this got into a pretty fascinating discussion because the attorneys, uh, the prosecutors said, well, you know uh, – 
it should be in the report. If there are validation studies, like all that stuff could be in the report. And, and I said, well, what if the validation studies haven't been done? You know, what if you're dealing with a technique that hasn't been traditionally validated? And the prosecutor said, well, you should actually put that in the report too so that we know and so that we confront that issue. And then the defense attorney in the room, uh, Brendan Max from Chicago, uh, he uh, he jumped in and had some good points about this, again, about the need for it to be in the report and the ability to discuss it. But the attorneys, the, the attorneys in the room sort of agreed that, you know, they're aware that certain forensic evidence has more or less validation studies than other. I think they were a little nervous to hear about the, the lack of human error rate studies for the interpretation of complex DNA mixtures. Some of them knew about that, some didn't. Right. Yep. What? I, yeah, right, right. But that's the thing they kept saying, well, just put that in the report. And, I, and he, Simon Cole was there too. Simon Cole was one of our expert panelists. And, uh, you know, he and I both agreed, yeah, you're never going to see that coming from a crime lab. <laughs> it's just that's just not going to be on the front page. Oh, by the way, this technique that we're using hasn't been traditionally validated. Well, and that's another thing is is, is where do you put that? Like how do you – well, they uh, they said they should they said there should be a section on the limitations and the weaknesses of the evidence. Like that should be a section in your report. I mean, okay, I I am <laughs> all for for having that made available in in a in a fashion. However, it would be like okay, you know when you open up the the a book, right? Most people kind of skip ahead, skip ahead to chapter one. You don't usually read the first like four, five, six pages of a book. It seems like to me it would be like putting like the ISBN number, the publisher's address, uh, all that you know, not based on a real person or event, all that crap on every single page in a book. You, you really just need the title and the author, or sometimes even just alternating title on this page, author on the next page, even if it's like a a fully open public portion of the Crime Lab's website. Here's a list of all our the, the techniques that we utilize and um, validation information for you know, for each one. Having it like printed on every page of the report is, uh, to me, it's just a waste. Where ninety plus ninety five plus percent of those reports aren't read at all, and but even if it is, then if it's just going to be the same for every report, just put it somewhere else that is also you know accessible to all interested parties. Yeah, I know where I know where you're coming from, and you know our reports are more what we call certificate of analyses. They're just bare bones conclusions, and we have a lot of them, you know, coming from a lab. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I do take a slightly different approach, of course, in private case work where I do have boilerplate terminology. I do have, you know, three or four pages I tack on at the end and do discuss error rates and limitations and differences of opinion and variability in examiners. And that's all in the body of, of you know, four pages I can tack on and I can adjust it for different cases. And I have sweet fast standard for its efficiency and all that kind of uh, background info in there. It's uh, it would, I I agree. I mean, it's possible. It just 
it would be very burdensome to have to review that. I mean, it would have to be standardized each time, and it would have to be standard language so you weren't having to technically review it on every report. It could be done, but you're right. It doesn't have to be in the report. It could be a supplemental. It could be, you know, actually it would be nice if there was a standard text uh, that was for every crime lab they could use. They could just download this standard text information, and this would be something you could make available, you know, instead of each lab writing their own version of it. And I mean, well, the, the exact language you use there, tacking it on to the end of the report, you know, the report to me uh, is um, a summary of what you did in this case. Yes, uh, yes, uh, but again, in, I, I'm talking about my private case reports. Right. The things that I did, for example, if I used gyro or if I used the sufficiency graph, these are references that I, I make and then include those references in the report so that an attorney can look up that reference. So if I'm referring specifically to SweetFast standards of documentation, methodology, etc., then those not only need to be in the report, in my view, but also discoverable and need to be disclosed. So I agree with you. It's just right. part of my examinations are making references to other documentation, documents. And that's, that's I guess, for, for me where I would put it is, is as a um, supplemental information, maybe there's a way to do it where... <laughs> The, the report doesn't change, but like when it gets printed or, or emailed or accessed by the lawyers or the cops, you know, it shows up on their view of it. And that's more just a, a network or database kind of thing. But I already have enough paper on my desk, you know. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> Understood. Understood. All right. So, well, one of the things that was also pretty interesting was, for me was to listen to the police officers that were in there. And yeah. this was very surprising to me. And oh, I, I, I had a, a state investigator, a county deputy who's an investigator, and a local PD who's an investigator. And all three of them, they, I, it was almost like the three of them got together and said, all right, what's our game plan? Because all three of them independently <laughs> had the exact same thing to say. And this was, like, this is, for me, very refreshing to hear and also, uh, it is not what fingerprint examiners are traditionally being told and what, uh, you know, there's, in my view, sometimes a lot of misinformation that gets spread around. Well, if you do that, you put that in your report, the cop's going to go and he's going to do this or she's going to do that. Oh, you can't put that in there because yeah. the, that, that's just a winking to the officer and they're going to go and arrest that person and wait till those lawsuits come in. Yeah, um, boy, I got news for people. <laughs> Listening to them and and how they perceive our reports and what they do is not at all what I think the community would have thought of. Now, let me preface this with this is not a statistically significant sample. This is three investigators, and maybe there are three good investigators. Well, I, might, I might offer that they are three good investigators. If you think back to just about three years ago now, we had um, you know, mm, crime scene mm-hmm. tech – a uh, cop, uh, Lisa yep. Steele, an attorney uh, for the Tri-Division Conference when it was in uh, Tempe, Arizona. Yep. And the cop in that case, exact same thing. You know, when we talked to him and asked him questions about this, even for, I mean, even for an ID, he understood it as, um, okay, he touched the thing, but it doesn't mean that I need to go arrest this guy. I just need to go talk to him and figure out why his fingerprints are there. 
you know, if there's any kind of reasonable contact. And then yep. the the kind of uh, the association that was short of an ID, um, he, he seemed to take with with to take in that right context um, again of talking the thing, you're looking for other uh, other evidence that would support or not support um, this association, the kind of inconclusive similarities, and um, yeah. It, uh, I'm sure there's the, well, the quote unquote, you know, dumb cops out there that, that aren't going to get it. But, um, I, yeah, I think you're right that, that there's, there's plenty of cops out there that, that, uh, we don't maybe give them enough credit to really understand what we're, we're trying to say to them. Yeah. I mean, the, the, what all three said is when I get the report, the investigation does not end there. The investigation continues. Yeah. The investigation continues, and my job is to get more evidence. And all three of them echoed this over and over throughout the entire day that even when they get the report that says that's his fingerprint, just like you said, they don't stop investigating. They have to go find out why his fingerprints are there. Now, yes, he's probably involved or could be involved, uh, but what they just they kept talking about was it didn't doesn't matter if it's an identification or even a partial you know this partial statistical association we were talking about didn't matter to them they they took the they took the full id with as much grain of salt as the association and i thought that was actually really interesting this idea that when we tell them it's an id they're just as gung-ho about it as we are oh no 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 uh it they they all talked about how their job is just continue gather evidence continue to generate more leads more potential people involved etc they said that they keep doing it until other cases come along that require attention or the prosecutor tells them to stop they will just keep generating witnesses and statements and try to collect more evidence and they'll just keep doing that until they hit every dead end possible but I thought that was was really telling that it it doesn't just end with our report. Yeah, and and that that fits in you know really nicely with with uh, what I always kind of talk about is the um, is that it's it makes sense especially now in this context to make your ID and then quit or at least yeah. pause comparisons, cut that report, and then. You know, let them know, hey, if you need more stuff, let me know. But, you know, this is a logical stopping point. I know you're going to go do your whole detecting thing right now because you're the detective. And right. maybe they'll they'll come up with other leads, link up to other people, and, you know, do all their stuff. And, and, um, and they're not going to need us anymore. Or maybe they still need us to look at the rest of the fingerprints, look for more people. Mm like you said they they keep investigating after they get a report to find uh, more stuff and you know like i've said many times it, you know it, it seems like latent prints is is like the only part of law enforcement where you have to do everything every time and a lot of times it's us putting that on ourselves uh, because you know no one else is expected to do everything for every case uh, not the cops or the prosecutors or the DNA lab, um, but somehow in a lot of agencies, the latent print unit is expected or expects themselves to do everything every time. 
and uh, there's just not enough resources uh, floating around um, many times for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the uh, and then the, the you know the last group again, this the prosecutors they echoed a lot of what the cops were saying that for them it's about telling a story, and they all three of them they they work in the metro area. Uh, all three of them had the same view as well. We're probably not going to charge on any sing- just a single piece of evidence. What we're going to do is we're going to take that fingerprint and we're going to see where it goes. Is there yep. a story here? Uh, when we you know investigate this guy, um, one of the scenarios was a threatening letter to a politician, and this got into a really good debate. Um, really fascinating. I wish I could get into all the details of it, but you know, it would take a bit. But it was a threatening <laughs> letter in which there was a, a fingerprint found on the letter. And they basically said, you know, so even though the fingerprint's on the inside of the letter, that's not going to be enough for me to charge. I need a story. I need to go to this guy's Facebook page and see that there's a manifesto or that he has a history of, you know, violence towards people or that he's got this or he's got that. I, just because you found his fingerprint on the letter and yet it was completely sealed inside the envelope and yes, it's on, you know, the evidence itself, that is not enough for me to charge. I have to be able to tell the story. What is his motive? Where where would he have, you know, um, come in contact with this p- person before, these other people, so on and so forth. It was it was also pretty telling because, again, we think sometimes it's evidence. Well, we got a hit. Oh, there we go. We solved the case. And we find out they never charged. Well, that's why, uh, because right. that's all they had was a fingerprint on the inside of a vehicle or a fingerprint on the inside of a home. Maybe legitimate access wasn't there, but they're not charging because there's no story for them to tell. And I thought that was pretty enlightening. Yeah, that's, uh, that, I mean, that makes sense, too. You know, um, yeah, the prosecutor, they, they, they tend to only kind of go with the sure bets, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it, it 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 was interesting. There was a lot of back and forth on that topic too about because some of the jurors, for example, uh, weighed in on you know we just threw out the fingerprint on the letter, but the prosecutor said, well, I need I need to you know go to the guy's Facebook and you know I need to see that uh, that he wrote a manifesto or something, and right. that 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 might be enough for me there. And the, and one of the jurors went, oh, whoa, hold on, and now if that was your case you're presenting and all you had is that. I wouldn't convict on that. That's not enough for me to convict. Uh, even some of the forensic scientists in the audience uh, were a little skeptical, especially when we when we dropped the the weight of the evidence and it was, you know, now characteristics and agreement and you know however you want to think about this, it was either strong support or had a statistic to it, so it wasn't an ID. But now you throw in all this other information about the manifesto. He's written to this person before. He's, you know, cease and desist. But now even the forensic scientists in the room were starting to pull back and go, well, but it's not an ID on the letter. So it really was this management of prior probabilities, telling the story, what information was going around, you know, what information was, you know, involved in the case versus the secondary stuff that would come up uh you know the 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 strength of the evidence how good is the the match so to speak how strong is the match is an identification is it something less than that etc that's great glenn anything else on this I really wish I could have been here for all this it sounded really interesting was there anything else you wanted to mention about it well you know Cedric 
Cedric Newman uh, was one of you know the other co-hosts, and Cedric had some really good points. I should probably back up and mention that you know, Cedric and I were running it, but we also had Simon Cole, Bill Thompson, who's done a lot of jury studies, formal jury studies, and this was not a jury study. This was a right. survey and a discussion. I mean, let's be clear about that. And uh, Brendan Max, from uh, defense attorney from Cook County. And so we were a panel of experts and then these other people we mentioned. Cedric had some really interesting points. And one of the things that he did that, you know, every member of the audience really liked and you could tell them starting to think about it. And what Cedric, you know, threw out, of course, was context, the, the importance of context. You know, Cedric said, you know, he threw out, if I was to tell you that I just went and spent and bought a brand new car, for $10,000, would you think that's a lot of money? And you could see the audience, and most people in the audience were thinking about it and sort of shaking their head. Although, you know, and, and Cedric said, okay, well, who thinks it's a lot of money? Raise your hand. And, you know, a couple people in the audience raised their hand. You know, the hairdresser, for example, raised her hand. <laughs> and, you know, right. a ha- handful of people, college students, you know, that were in the class. <laughs> All right. So then uh, the next the uh the next uh what about twenty thousand or thirty thousand or forty thousand for a car and so on so anyway he had said you know ten thousand dollars you know for a brand new car but then he turned around and said what if i told you i spent ten thousand dollars on a meal last night and everyone went whoa that'd be crazy and what he said was realize that's the same thing i just told you i spent ten thousand dollars it's the exact same thing why is it so much more for you for a meal and, you, you know, there was this moment of, you know, dawning for people because then he jumped into, look, I just told you the likelihood ratio for, you know, DNA is 100,000 and the likelihood ratio for pheromones is 100,000. So, you know, realize what you've done. You've taken it and you've put it in context and you've transformed it to your own internal scale and you're filtering it through your own subjective interpretation. And that was, that was kind of a cool, cool little thing. Uh, the other thing that Cedric had, and I, th- I thought he summarized it really nicely when he said, look, and he was just summarizing this. A lot of people are telling us we need to be using statistics, likely ratios. We need to be using error rates and talking about error rates. As you saw today, and as I think we can all agree, this is not easy. This is, it's easy to write and easy to put that in a report or just write it down in some you know, law, professional, you know, law professor's journal or whatever. <laughs> but... In reality, it's much harder to execute, and there are lots of complications. And one of the the things we just kept seeing over and over, there was a point where Cedric gave, you know, Cedric turned around and gave, a, you know, some report statements on statistics. And after I said, okay, and I was looking at the jurors, I said, what he said was technically correct in every single sense of, of possible. It's the technically correct statement. How many of you understood what he said? And you had like one person, the doctor, and maybe the person next to him who was mm, sort of. <laughs> so you know that 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 just came back to. So this is what we're supposed to say because this is what science says we can say. This is what we're right. supposed to be doing. Yet it doesn't do us any good if you don't understand a single word of what he's saying. 
So we really just kept playing with that back and forth. And, uh, you know, in the end, we will summarize these data, and and Cedric and I and maybe a couple other people will try to put our thoughts down in a professional publication and try to capture that, maybe publish, you know, a few words on on our observations, some take-home messages. You know, it it seems to, to, you know, keep coming back around each one of these little points to something you said, you know, towards the beginning is, is explaining it, the you know the results in different ways is the key. Yeah. Um, to to use a word, to use a verbal scale, to use a statistic, to put it all in context. Uh, you know, um, an analogy too. Cedric did a really cool thing where, when we threw out uh, one statistic, a uh, uh, ten thousand in likelihood ratio, he said, and that's the approximate frequency of how many four-leaf clovers there are in a field of 10,000 clovers. Uh, yeah, so something to relate back to what they know. Because, you know, you're, you're going to hopefully eventually catch the way that someone's going to best understand it. Yeah. And with the jury made up of a mix of people, you know, there's not going to be one way that's going to really catch everybody's best way of understanding it. So that's that's interesting. Um, that's definitely something to think about. That's really hard. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we're not in control of where the discussion goes. <laughs> right. That was another topic that we explored. One of the things I kept asking is, and whose responsibility is it to ask that? There was this great moment where this DNA analyst... Uh, said, I think it's the forensic scientists. I think every time I give a conclusion, I make sure that, and he rambled off a bunch of things, and, you know, he, he, from technical standpoint, what he basically said is, I make sure when right. I give a random match probability that they don't confuse that, you know, with the, uh, the, the posterior probability of guilt, and I make sure that, you know, the jurors, and he rambled off a bunch of statements. Cedric was great. He just turned around and looked at the jurors and said, did any of you understand what he just said? And they just were, like, looking like, no, either they had just completely tuned him out, or they had, right. you know, stopped listening altogether. Uh, but you know, none of them said, "Yeah, I, I got, I got what he said." And so Cedric just looked at him and said, "There you go. <laughs> you said everything technically correct, but the minute you start talking about statistics, the average person's eyes just glaze over." So you might be saying it and getting it on record well done but the person who's supposed to be receiving this information does not understand it or know what to do with that information right and there's no way to know whether they got it you know uh for most right because uh, i mean almost every jurisdiction except for here in arizona and a couple other places the jurors can't ask questions right but i mean even still here it's not like this kind of open discussion in in that uh, you know conference room, where there was this back and forth to try to get down to to the heart of you know really understanding what's going on, but that's never going to happen in uh, in a courtroom. All right, Glenn, that that well that that one bit of the conference I think took up this whole episode. Uh, what do you say we? We, uh, we close this one out and come back with another episode covering some of the other stuff that you did or saw uh, at the conference. Yeah, I, I think that would be worth it. I, I think this alone was just such an experience. And, and, and again, some caution too. I mean, I know that uh, because, again, it wasn't a formal experiment and, it, you know, it, it, 
we can argue sample sizes and these things, but the experience, I, I, I had some great takeaway moments that I, I just have to bank. You know, the, we asked, and again, I, I do hope we get a publication or something out of this. There, there are these moments, just little moments where I thought they were going to say one thing, and then this person would speak up and say something completely opposite. And I go, "Oh wow, I would have, I would have thought that they would have gone this way with it." And then suddenly, one of the other jurors would raise their hand and then go the complete opposite way. Which, I there were certain questions that we asked where they were all on board. They were all went a certain direction, especially when it came to the math. It was real clear that the math you know, they weren't strong with the math. But then when you start getting into more opinion things or just asking them their thoughts, they were all over the map. I mean you would end up with two – with one answer, two with another answer, two with another, two with another. And it really just shows how variable you know, the peer juror system here is in the US where yeah. you have all these people in various educational backgrounds and occupations and they – do not hear or feel or understand this stuff not nearly the way I think we need them to. And and they all think that they're right in their in their understanding and or the in how they're going to be applying it uh, to the case. And yeah. they're probably all pretty confident that they're right in in how they're seeing it. Well, we asked them that too, actually. We did ask them a lot about their confidence and understanding. So we, we'll be able to measure that a little bit. That was one of the questions okay. we kept asking them was, and what was your level of understanding of this? And we had a rating scale. So, I don't know, we'll see. It, it, you're right. I mean, they could come out being very confident on things they shouldn't have been. On the other hand, their insight really surprised me. And, I, and it was just so great seeing the lay people the cops and the attorneys it's three distinctly different end users they, Cedric kept yeah. referring to them as the customer because they really are three different customers but they were very different in how they process this information and what they would do with it fascinating fascinating alright well uh, listeners out there if you have any questions for us uh, send us emails eric at rayforensics.com or glenn at eliteforensicservices.com uh, you know, go to uh, rayforensics.com or to uh, ronsmithandassociates.com for you know, upcoming classes that either myself or Glenn will be teaching, um, you know, different places around the country. Yeah, and, you know, I'm going to plug uh, one right now, Eric, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just because it finally got some really early ones, uh, I'm going to have two, and I'm happy to have advanced ACEV applications. They're both through yeah. Ron Smith and Associates. I just I love teaching that class. Uh, I know the one that will be open for sure is in April in Florida. Uh, so assuming that our friends in Florida are okay after Irma, who <laughs> <Still> there, <laughs> they're all all there and rebuilt. Uh, yeah, down in it's in Orlando area. That'll be in April. So spring break in, in Florida and uh, fingerprint class. Uh, check it out. Go to ronsmithandassociates.com. Uh, listen to us every week on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, or on iTunes. Uh, wherever you listen, give us a rating, five stars, or ten stars, however many is the most stars. Give us the most stars. Uh, Ava, Avogadro's number. Uh, you can also donate, like at the, you hear at the beginning of the show, to uh, patreon.com uh, to kind of keep things going. Uh, we just got the bill for another year of hosting uh, with, um, with the server. Uh, through soundcloud.com hosting all these files 
uh, and it does help us out to, to keep that, uh, that all going. So even just like a dollar a month uh, is very, very much appreciated and, um, uh, and helpful to, to the cause of the Double Loop Podcast. And as always, uh, the things you hear on this show are the opinion of myself and Glenn, and not necessarily those of our agencies or anybody else. Uh, so with that, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Yeah.